0: To infinity and beyond!
1: Welcome aboard Spaceship Earth.
2: The torque and transmission load data are looking good.
0: Great, let's proceed to the rough road tests.
2: You got it.
1: Please step away from the cars and stand on the dark area of the platform. wE
2: Welcome to show number 21 of the WDW Radio Show for the week of July 1st, 2007, and thanks for tuning in once again. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and I have a lot of fun segments planned for you this week. My visit to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill includes discussion and audio evidencing some possible big changes and improvements to the resort and ADR reservation systems, as well as a possible new addition to Cinderella Castle and the Canada Pavilion and World Showcase. Eric Hollister and I introduced the first of our Walt Disney World half marathon contest challenges and I announced the winner of our first Where in the World have you seen this contest. I announced this next in our Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World series, the Walt Disney World Monorail and discuss with Jeff Pepper its origins, technology, fun facts and intangible qualities that make it a true wonder. Fred Block's Magic Meat event is coming up soon, and once again he was kind enough to allow us to hold our DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project Charity Auction to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Pat Whitson joins me to talk about the auction, some of the amazing items and experiences that are included, as well as how the generosity of so many Disney fans will once again help a seriously ill child's wish come true to visit Walt Disney World. Brian Ripper from the All About the Mouse Disney podcast joins me to talk about another best of the best at Walt Disney World, and this time, it's the best pool on property. This week's email segment talks about handheld technology in the parks, July 4th fireworks in Walt Disney World, Adventureland Then and Now, the walk around the world bricks, some suggestions for Disney, and so much more. Of course, I'll play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show.
1: And now, a trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill.
2: We're going to take a relatively quick but very interesting trip, I think, over to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. There's not a lot this week because I am recording early as I will be away on business um, for the weekend. So I do need to record this segment earlier. But the, uh, the first rumor is something that I think is very, very interesting and something that's going to affect probably all of us in the near future if it does come true. I received an email last week from listener Sue, who is SamIam717 on the DisneyWorldTrivia.com forums, about a possible big change and new features coming to Disney based on a survey that they were conducting. This survey that was sent to her, and one that I actually took personally, it does appear as though Disney may be planning to introduce a new reservation system for both not only the resort rooms, but for advanced dining reservations as well. The survey email says... This survey is about voices, personalities, and first impressions. It's designed to capture your snap decisions about a few personalities. There are only 20 questions, and they expect that it takes about 8 minutes to complete. During the survey, you're going to be asked to listen to different voices. Each voice will speak identical phrases, after which you'll be asked a couple of questions. As you listen to the voices, try to imagine what kind of people these voices belong to. Focus on the personality of each speaker based on the sound of their voice. Think fast. After listening to the voices, try to make your choice as quickly as you can within a second or two. Remember, we're looking for a snap decision. The survey was open to only 75 people, which seems somewhat low to me, but it did play a series of a series of voice prompts that asked guests to describe what, what they were feeling, uh, whether the speakers were helpful, courteous, knowledgeable, gave you that, that kind of quote-unquote Disney feeling, etc. You were then asked to rate... Which of the voices seemed to best convey that feeling or demeanor? So what I want to do is I was able to take audio snippets from a bunch of these voices. I'm going to play a bunch of them uh, for you now, just so you get an idea of what they were doing in this, uh, in this survey. Pay close attention, because I'm going to play a couple of variations of the same segment so you can hear the different voices that Disney was trying to use.
3: Welcome. How can I help you today? Tell me briefly what you're calling about. Like, can I make a reservation? Or, I need a golf course tea time. So go ahead. What can I help you with? Okay, a new reservation. To help me find the best person to book your trip, tell me, have you ever stayed with us before? Okay, a new reservation. To help me find the best person to book your trip, tell me, have you ever stayed with us before? I'd love to reserve you a table in our restaurant. First, tell me the date you'd like to come and dine with us. Guests are invited to check in any after 3 p.m. on the day of arrival, and checkout is by noon on
1: the departure day.
2: So based not only on the questions in the email, but the questions in the survey and what actually the speakers were saying, it really makes me wonder what's next. Uh, will we be able to call in and use voice prompts and voice recognition to make a resort reservations? W- what about ADRs? Uh, if so, will they put into place certain safeguards to prevent some overbooking like we may have talked about some time ago on the show? Now, I was thinking, you know, with the completion of the computer upgrades that will allow for how reservations made in the future that I spoke about a couple of weeks ago with the 2008 resort rate changes, coupled with the computers in the guest rooms like the contemporary, what they're doing now, it makes me wonder if there are additional features such as this that Disney is going to begin to roll out. Again, we will pay very close attention to what's going to happen in the future, but it looks like Disney, Disney may be putting... Uh, some of the power to make these reservations and some control of goes on directly into guest sands, whether it be via computer whether it be via telephone but uh, like I said, we'll definitely pay very close attention in the coming weeks couple of the quick rumors about uh, things going on over at the parks. I've received some emails from people saying that uh, they hear that Rock and Roller Coaster is supposed to go down for rehab in September, from September 2nd through the 30th, but uh, I have not received any confirmation on that. That's a relatively long refurb uh, for an attraction like Rock and Roller Coaster, so I would wonder what, if anything, would change inside. Speaking of attractions being closed for refurbishment over in World Showcase, Disney's website is reflecting that Oh Canada. Uh, in the Canada Pavilion, obviously, will be closed for refurbishment from August 20th through August 24th, 2007. This will likely to be uh, to install the new film, which will assumedly uh, debut on the 25th. We know that um, there was talk early on in the year about new filming going on up in Canada, so I would assume that that is what's going to take place at this time. Some other rumors coming out of the studios this week include a few new ones as well as more details about some rumors from some time ago. First, it does appear as though we may be getting a new show at the old ABC Theater in the spring of 2008. Roof work permits that were filed recently that we discussed a couple of weeks ago may just be the first step into filling that empty theater, although no details have come out as to what exactly may be going in. So let the speculation begin. Next, the Disney Stars and Motor Cars Parade appears as though it will be replaced with an updated version of Disneyland's Block Party Bash sometime in March 2008. Young Jedi's Rejoice, as the Jedi Training Academy will soon be added as a year-round offering starting later on this year, with work on a new stage location commencing later on this month. And for those of us with young kids, and who personally are fans of Playhouse Disney, the Playhouse Disney Live on Stage show looks as though it will be getting the rumored changes to the show's lineup, with the very popular Little Einsteins and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse characters replacing our good friends Bear in the Big Blue House, Stanley and the Book of Pooh. Across the plaza in the animation courtyard, the Voyage of the Little Mermaid show appears as though it's going to get some type of refurbishment in the fall of 2007, although no details as to the length and or type of change is evident as yet. Uh, I should be clear, though, it does not appear as though this is going to be replaced. Uh, there has been rumors for a long time that the show may be taken out because there is going to be a show opening up on Broadway. That is not the rumor that I'm hearing at this point, but again, I'll keep you updated as I hear more. Heading down Mickey Avenue, the Sorcerer Mickey meet-and-greet may be moving, during the construction of Toy Story Media, to a permanent location. And this time, it's going to be in the Magic of Disney Animation building, whose entrance is also at the back of the animation courtyard. This new venue is expected to open before the busy holiday season, and if these rumors are true, it'll have a huge backdrop depicting the entire Sorcerer's Apprentice scene from Fantasia. Now... This rumor has also fueled more in the whole studio's name-change-game rumor saga. While I am very, very suspect of a complete change of the name of the studios to something like the Disney Pixar Studios, recent filings, as well as the addition of this previous rumor, starts to lend credibility to the rumor that Mickey Avenue will instead be renamed Pixar Place. Now, I'm looking more into this part of the rumor, and will continue to update you as I hear more. Finally, over at the Magic Kingdom, it appears as though another abandoned, at least to guests at this point, venue may be reopening in the future. Saddle Up Partners, as the Diamond Horseshoe Saloon in Frontierland, may be opening during peak times of this year as an added buffet dining location, much as what they've done over at the Noodle Station in Tomorrowland. Now, I will look for more information on this as it comes out, but look for a possible opening during this upcoming holiday season. But remember... Uh, If it does open, it may not be all day or even every day if this rumor is true. There's also a very, very unofficial rumor that I'm trying to get additional confirmation on as soon as possible, and that is that Cinderella Castle may be getting... A little added decoration this holiday season. The rumor is that hundreds of lights will be added to the exterior with work on the castle to install the lights going on from September until November when the holiday season kicks off with the first Very Merry Christmas party. Again, I want to stress this is a very, very new, very unofficial rumor. I will continue to update you on this as I hear anything more. And as always keeping with the show's interactive theme if you hear any rumors or want to discuss anything by all means send them in to me at lou at wdw call the voicemail at 206-202-4wdw or comment on anything that we discussed this week in the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com For this week's Best of the Best at Walt Disney World segment, I wanted to bring on another friend of the show. He's the host, or I should say now co-host, of the All About the Mouse podcast with Jonathan Dichter. And that is Brian Ripper. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Lou. How you doing? Good good very well thanks Brian and I and had a chance to meet uh, down at Walt Disney World a couple of months ago. I've actually been on Brian's show where we talked about the marathon. Let's not talk about my training please <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah Brian's got a great podcast over there Brian get real quickly tell everybody kind of what your show is about. Oh, well, basically, the name of the show is called All
4: About the Mouse, and for anybody who may not have heard yet, um, I'm thrilled to announce that Jonathan Dichter will be joining me as co-host uh, beginning sometime in July. Uh, we haven't set uh, uh, what the, the exact date is going to be. I don't know if it's going to be the first Friday in July, but basically, July, look forward to Jonathan coming over. Um, and basically, it's just about Disney. Uh, we try to keep the shows somewhat short. Uh, like so mine. Like, a, like mine. Yeah. Well, I know. Every, <laughs> I know everybody has to get time to listen to Lou's podcast, so we try to leave enough time in there for that. So we we try to keep them, uh, you know, somewhat short. And uh, basically, we'll have a you know Disney news at the top of the segment, and then we usually have a uh, featured topic each week, something that we'll talk about. And uh, sometimes we'll bring on Lou if he's good, you know. And uh, <laughs> it might on there. <laughs> yeah, bring on other people. So.
2: Uh, but we have guests stop by the show all the time it's a lot of fun it's cool cool well I'll definitely put a link up in the show notes um, to, to the all about the mouse website but uh, we're here to talk about one of Walt Disney World's best of the best. And when we started talking about this segment, um, there was something that instantly came to your mind that I am in complete and utter agreement. And that's the best pool on property. And I'm sure people have their favorites. I've heard everything from the pool over at Coronado Springs to Caribbean Beach to Pop Century to, to the Polynesian. But I think we're in agreement that what we feel is the best pool on property for a variety of reasons is Storm Along Bay at Disney's Yacht and Beach Club. Brian, yes, that, go ahead. Tell us why, why you think it, it qualifies.
4: Uh, definitely. I agree with you uh, 100%, Lou. And I'm, I'm glad you had me come on and do this uh, feature because... I am, I am not a pool person when it comes to Walt Disney World. Uh, I mean, there's so much to see, so much to do. Who's out, who has time to go to the pool? You know, I mean, you know, you're going commando style. You're up right. at 6 a.m. You're coming in at you know, 1 o'clock in the morning. Who has time to really go to the pool? But uh, you know, my wife and I were down on vacation, and um, my sister and her family actually joined us last month. And so, you know, reluctantly, I was dragged out to the pool. And I, I got to tell you, I had a blast. I mean, this pool really just kind of sold me on uh, on Disney pools. I mean, and I, I guess I really shouldn't say pool because it's really a, a series of pools. And it's shared by the Yacht and Beach Club. And uh, the things that I, I really enjoy about it, number one, the very first thing I did when I got there is, you know, my sister was like, you got to try the slide. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So uh, the slide is very well themed. It looks like a, basically a shipwreck. And uh, so, you know, go up to the top of the slide, which is a pretty big slide for a, for a hotel pool. Uh, I'll say that now, I don't know the exact uh, height of it, but probably somewhere about maybe 20 to 30 feet high. Mm-hmm. And um, so I go down the slide and I come out and splash in the water and I set my feet down and I'm like, holy cow, there is real sand in the bottom of this pool. And uh, I tell you, that this really impressed me. I was like, wow, this is really neat. They've got sand in the bottom of the pool.
2: Yeah, and I think that you hit it right on the head is that trying to qualify this as a pool is a bit of a misnomer. It really is almost, it's almost like a free water park. I mean, it really rivals a water park because there's so much. First of all, it's not a single little pool with maybe a little kiddie pool and a hot tub. It's three acres, you know, big. There's, you know, bridges. There's kiddie pools. It's sand bottom. I mean, it's super soft sand bottom. Uh, There's zero entry areas. You mentioned the, the slide, and we should talk a little about it. It's the albatross, and it looks like a beached ship that is beached on Crescent Lake, which is really across the walkway, across the street from the pool area itself. I mean, you kind of have to walk across the, um, you know, the promenade in order to get there to climb up, and it, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, very, very, a lot of fun, good for kids, good for adults, um, and it kind of, you know, drops you into the, into the deep sand bottom pool.
4: I I agree, and you hit the nail on the head there. With uh, you're saying good for kids and good for adults too, because there's a couple things that I, uh, other things I thought were really neat. Number one, they've got kind of like a whirlpool area, which is kind of a a circular area set aside in a pool, and uh, they they basically make a whirlpool. I mean, you can kind of just kind of let go, and the water will just kind of carry you around and around in a circle, uh, which was entertaining for me, I got to say. And uh, the other area that I really enjoyed was the sinking sands area. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's an area of the pool, like I mentioned, there's sand in the bottom of the pool. And I'm not quite sure how they do this, but I think maybe they do it just by kind of squirting water up underneath the, the, the floor uh, in the sand there. But basically, it's, it, periodically, you'll just kind of be standing there, and all of a sudden, your leg will kind of sink down, uh, you know, maybe a foot. Into the sand there. And I gotta say, I, I sat there and played around on that for about half an hour. I mean, easily amused. Yeah, and
2: there's a lazy river. You could just kind of get on a little inner tube and kind of float around the lazy river. There's three quiet pools. There's one for the Yacht Club, kind of on the far end of the resort near a little garden area. There's a Beach Club pool, also with a jacuzzi that's on the opposite far end that faces Crescent Lake. Beautiful views of the lake area. Uh, There's another pool uh, by the Beach Club Villas, which kind of faces a smaller lake. And, you know, it actually became so popular that about 10 years ago, they actually had to put a fence up around Stormalong Bay because so many non-resort guests were coming over just to use the pool. You know, why why go to Typhoon Lagoon? Why go to Blizzard Beach when they have a free pool area like this right here with, with so much stuff to do?
4: Yeah, and now they just do the wristbands. Now, I mean, I couldn't believe it. was like, wow, this is the only pool I've ever had to go to where you need a wristband to be able to swim in the pool.
2: Right, and there's no cost. All you need to do is show them your room key in order to get, uh, you know, you can show them to one of the lifeguards. And one thing we should say, too, there's an, I mean, one thing I noticed was there's an abundance, almost an overabundance of lifeguards. Um, they do an awesome job because the, the, the pool is so big. Um, it's actually the largest sand bottom pool in the world. There's 750,000 gallons of water in there, making it the land largest sand bottom pool in the world. Wow, I didn't I didn't
4: know that. That's pretty neat.
2: Yeah, and, and you know I think it's great for kids. I think it's great for adults. Um, you know because of what you can do, you can rent you know inner tubes, you can rent those kind of noodles, so kids can go in. There are little um, kitty area pools. You know if you have real you know young toddlers, things like that. Uh, there's a playground for kids right near Storm Bay. You can, and again. This is odd coming from me because I've always said time spent in the park, not time spent not in the parks, is time wasted. But the, the storm along Bay Pool and everything that surrounds it really is is like a day at the water park because there's so much to experience there. There's also, um, God, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, the Hurricane Hannah's, the the grill uh, where if you want to get something to eat, um, they also have you know frozen adult beverages to kind of help cool things they, off. They were, as well.
4: and the frozen drinks there were very good too. But I I just got to say that. <laughs>
2: Again, for research purposes only. I know that's how I even buy But there's actually a lot of stuff, too. And uh, this is almost kind of a, a joint hidden treasure because there's so much to do in and around the pool as well. And I think this is what a lot of guests might not realize or overlook. There's everything from the Albatross Treasure Cruise, which is a kiddie pirate cruise, and that's something that's about uh, 28 $29, and we'll talk about that probably in a separate segment. But there's all kinds of things that go on throughout the day, in the evening for kids and adults things like a kids island groove party where there's a little kind of a little uh dance party there's UNO tournaments if you're a big UNO fan I used to love playing UNO there's oh, UNO tournaments I, I missed out on the UNO tournament <laughs> those, <laughs> oh, those, you gotta be kidding yep those go on almost every day they have uh at 8 o'clock at night they have campfire sing-alongs on the shores of Crescent Lake on the beach right on Crescent Lake again these are all free Nine o'clock, right after they have movies under the stars, you stay right there. They'll show things like The Incredibles, Pirates of the Caribbean, things like that. They do arts and crafts. They have dodgeball games. They have bingos. Um, they have contests called What's in Your Beach Bag. And if you're just by the pool area, they have this kind of contest in the in kind of the the uh, late afternoon. And where something in your beach bag, just a random item, could win you prizes. They give you all kinds of prizes. They have So You Think You Know Disney Trivia Contests. No, I have not actually tried. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because if I lose, all my credibility goes right out there. Any credibility I might have had beforehand. Uh, what else? Connect Four Tournaments, Treasure uh, Hunts. Uh, soccer, junior fishing excursions, all kinds of things like that. There's a whole list of recreation activities you can get from the concierge over at the pool area, over at the yacht and beach club. So you really could make a day or an afternoon. And again, because location, location, location is everything, you could be at Epcot. You can walk back to your hotel, spend a couple hours relaxing by the pool, do some of these things, If your kids have some of this excess energy, they can play, they can run, they can do all that kind of stuff and swim. You can walk right back to Epcot for for World Showcase, for Illuminations, for dinner. Uh, I I just think, without question, Storm Along Bay ranks as as the best of the best pool.
4: Yeah, speaking of location, you know, or you can do what I did, uh, you know, if you're your spouse is okay with this, whereas your wife goes to the pool and then you go to Epcot and you know, kind of do a little geeking out there
2: at Epcot. But you have to be careful because often they sneak out to the spa, and that's where, <laughs> that's the killer right there with your credit card. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Take away her room key. But... <laughs> uh,
4: well, you, you were kind of talking about food, and I think it should be noted also that while it, I, it's not really considered part of the pool area, Beaches and Cream is just right there. Oh, you and, read my uh, mind. Uh, <laughs> amazing I, you know i i did not try the ice cream i was trying to be good and keeping with good standings with training for the marathon and everything i asked but, you
2: not. i asked you not to go there you got them
4: to... <laughs> yeah l- l- you were you were really my you know my kind of my motivator there. oh like,
2: great this. you're in trouble then. <laughs> don't don't get the kitchen sink don't get it but it looked really good i gotta say that i uh, you know i'm not a huge ice cream person but i, I but I think Beaches and Cream is the best place for dessert on property, and I'm probably giving away another best of the best at some point. But there's a, something there called a No Way Jose, which has, you know, ice granola ice cream and uh, peanut butter chips and chocolate chips and cho- Oh, my. It's just, it's awesome. It's awesome. So what you do is you go commando style. You go all day. When Illuminations is over, you take your time wandering around World Showcase when it empties out. Go over, go to Beaches and Cream. Go get your dessert. Now, remember, although the, the main pool at Stormalong Bay does have regular operating hours, the quiet pools are normally open 24 hours a day. So you go, you have your ice cream, you relax a little bit, wait your half hour so you don't get a stomach ache, and then you can go in the quiet pool late at night and kind of just unwind from, from the day.
4: Lou, you just mapped out my uh, night before the half marathon right there. <laughs> Load up on ice cream, go swim in the pool, get absolutely no sleep, and go run thirteen point one mile.
2: I got to ask Mike Scopa if if the no way Jose is good pre-marathon for food or not.
4: Why not? Why not?
2: are you supposed to load up on pasta? Not ice cream? something like well, anyway,
4: or fried chicken too. That works too.
2: <laughs> so uh, you know that that's an kind of overly excited, I guess, way of talking about what we think uh, is Storm Along Bay. Uh, I, I think it just really has everything you know going for it um i think the landscaping is beautiful i think the pool is beautiful uh, you know the spas the jacuzzis the, the pirate ship across the way the views of crescent lake i could go on and on and on it's it's something that you definitely have to experience again you have to be a guest at the yacht or beach club you can't um pool hop if you are coming from from anywhere else um unless maybe one of the other you know main pools at, at your hotel is closed but they'll let you know ahead of time but um absolutely wonderful absolutely wonderful for all those reasons and so many more I'll put some more information up uh, about the Yacht and Beach Club and Stormalong Bay on this week's show notes but I want to thank Brian Ripper from the All About the Mouse Disney podcast for coming on and uh, talking about this week's best of the best at Walt Disney World thank you very much Lou I was glad to be here we'll have to uh, I'll see you at the pool in January
4: ah oh, definitely and, <laughs> and uh, beaches and cream too you'll be there too right you got it no way Jose's
2: are on me All right, sounds good. (laughs) I got to edit that part out, but (laughs) thanks again, Brian.
4: All right, good night, Luke.
2: Honoring greatness in imagination and the magic that enthralls us all, it's time for the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World. It's time for the next seven wonders of Walt Disney World. And while we're going to save the cast members for another day, we're going to talk about another one that, especially lately, has really received a high number of mentions from listeners and readers and members over at the DisneyWorldTrivia.com forum. So Jeff Pepper from 2719Hyperion.Blogspot.com is going to join me once again as we celebrate this next entry on the list. Jeff, welcome back.
0: Thanks, Luke. Glad to be
2: here. All right, so I'm going to ask you and the listeners to figuratively close your eyes once again and think of Walt Disney World. Now chances are, if we were right in our naming of Cinderella Castle as one of the Seven Wonders, that was the first thing that may have come to mind. Although Jeff, you may have thought of Julie from the Backstage Magic show, but <laughs> after, the cast- after the castle, after the castle, one of Walt Disney World's most lasting images and icons is not really an attraction maybe per se. building, show, or distant memory. It's something that most guests see and experience every day, really enjoy for the most part. But maybe don't stop to consider its importance to Walt Disney World since its very beginning, and I'm talking about the monorail.
0: The monorail next to Cinderella's Castle, especially when you look at the history of Walt Disney World, and its probably first two decades or so, the monorail was probably second only to the the castle as probably the iconic representation of the place,
2: and I think that's why uh, it, it qualifies. And I think that's what most people, when they emailed me or, or when they you know left the voicemail, that's what they said because they said, you know it's not really just a transportation system like like a bus or a tram. It really is an icon. And after Cinderella Castle, that that's probably is what you think, and then if you see a monorail, you instantly think of Walt Disney World. And, you know, Walt once said that I don't want the public to see the world they live in while they're at the park. I want them to feel as if they're in another world. And I think that the monorail actually literally and figuratively accomplishes that uh, on so many levels. It transports you from the real world into the magical world of Disney. Uh, I, I think I consider it attraction as one of my favorite things. Uh, and and I, think, I think what much of what makes up a lot of these seven wonders are the intangible qualities each possesses. Um, The monorail is no exception. It's not the fastest ride or the wildest ride. Sometimes it's not even the most comfortable ride in Walt Disney World. You know, at night it's crowded and noisy and there's a lot of hot, tired people. But the monorail itself is an icon and it is very important. And and I think we should talk about the history and some of the technology and changes and some of the fun facts and those intangibles that make this a, a true wonder of Walt Disney World. So uh, let's kind of go back, Jeff, and we'll talk about the history because despite what a lot of people, I think, believe, Walt Disney and his Imagineers did not invent the monorail. Uh, they were actually used way back in the late 1800s, you know, back as early as 1878. It was a steam-powered monorail system in California and an electric monorail system used in Long Island in uh, 1892, uh, 1892.
0: And actually, uh, the monorail, you know, that came to ultimately... Be in Disneyland in uh, 1959 was originated in Germany, correct?
2: Right, in uh, in Wuppertal.
0: Yeah, uh, that was it. Was a uh, um, Disney got together with the Allweg uh, company of uh, Cologne, Germany, and uh, developed the mo- the monorail that ultimately was installed in Disneyland at the at the end of that decade.
2: Right, and then uh, later on, obviously, you know, Walt Disney World opened in 1971 with a fleet of, of, you know, upgraded monorails. These these were known as the Mark IV monorail trains, and uh, they were also designed, by Where they were built in Florida um, by the Martin Marietta Company. And originally they had, there was 10, uh, 10 cars in the original fleet that was increased to 12 in 1977 when they added the lime and the coral monorails. But one
0: uh, of th- do you know all the colors?
2: Um, I'm gonna say yes because I, I have my notes in front of me. <laughs> I could probably I could probably fudge my way through even even without looking at my um at at my notes, but to sound like I know what I'm talking about, i was say absolutely I know all twelve in alphabetical order, so <laughs> Okay.
0: Very good. I'll let you off the hook. Thank okay, you. go on.
2: <laughs> uh, but, you know, technologically speaking, I think what, what really impresses me about the monorails, and I'm sure 99% of the people don't look at this, and yes, I, I stand there taking pictures, are the tracks. And, you know, the original monorail system had two tracks, and they circled Bay Lake, to, and they went from the Polynesian Magic Kingdom Contemporary to the Ticket and Transportation Center in that order. Uh, that was the resort loop, and the express loop obviously went just from the, the TTC over to the Magic Kingdom. There's also, I should kind of qualify that, there's also a spur from the loops between the Magic Kingdom and the Contemporary that leads over to the maintenance shop behind the Magic Kingdom. Um, that's kind of off the express loop and it crosses over. And have you have ever seen that kind of um, switching take place? It's it's actually pretty neat.
0: They Actually, they were doing that once on this last trip when uh, I was down in May. They were pulling uh, one of the, uh, the, the monorails off the track.
2: Yeah, and if you're looking to get back to your your hotel and you get stuck behind one of those things, it's not necessarily fun because it does take a few minutes. But uh, it's pretty neat to watch, either, especially if you can get into the front of the car and and see uh, and see the switch and take place. But the uh, the beams are really an engineering feat. Um, the trains actually run; they have rubber tires underneath, and they kind of run on a track, which is actually the, this 26 wide. Beam. These beams were built in Oregon, of all places, and they were shipped by truck to Florida. And there's lots of great pictures you can find online of these flatbed trucks taking these, uh, you know, up and down the highways to Florida. They actually have a styrofoam core, and that's wrapped up by steel and concrete, which makes them um, relatively lightweight and very efficient. Uh, there's 400. There's more than 400 beams of varying heights and depending on where they were going to be located. Uh, in order to follow the contour to land. Some were, you know, obviously much higher. And the do uh, you know where the highest point of any, any monorail track is?
0: I want to say, this is just going to be a really educated guess, I want to say it's on the Epcot line.
2: If the Epcot line were to go to, to the Contemporary... Er- <laughs> 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 yeah, the highest beam is about 65 feet above the ground, and that's right at the entrance exit to the uh, con- Contemporary Resort.
0: We'll just make sure we edit that out in
2: post-production. <laughs> Sorry I'm staying in. Anyway. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of going to the resorts, uh, and obviously the contemporary is very unique in that the Monterey passes through it, and that's one of the reasons why I love and have such an affinity for the contemporary. But it was actually going to be designed to visit some of the other resorts that were never built, like the Asian and Mediterranean resorts, um, which obviously never happened. And the Persian. That's right. And obviously, once the, uh, once the Grand Floridian was added... They created a a monorail station um, to there as well. But on um, in 1982, obviously, it was time to expand and extend the monorail for a four-mile-long third leg from the Transportation and Ticket Center over to Epcot, which was going to be opening up later on that year.
0: And then I guess the next big benchmark um, was in 1989, and I remember going through this because that's when I was at a point in time when I was traveling to the parks quite frequently – And it was in 89 that they switched over to the Mark 6 models, which was a dramatic change for the actual physical uh, monorail. They were all seated. And if you remember, each door that opened on the monorail basically took you into a row of seats. Mm. And the Mark uh, 6s basically changed to the as they exist today, which um, had the benches on each end of the compartment, but then also had standing room as well. And it, it increased the height. Um, a considerable amount there, and I, I just remember very distinctly over that course of time as they they were switching out, going from the new transition from the old ones to the new ones.
2: Yeah, the, the thing I remember most about the old Mark IVs was how they had to actually the cast members actually had to walk up to them and close each and every door on the monorails manually.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I forgot about that.
2: Something, some for some silly reason, the, the sound and watching the, the guys kind of walk by and close them. Sticks for in shunk. my mind. For shunk. For, shunk. <laughs> oh, for shunk, If for you shunk. want to call it a sound. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, you know the, the Mark Four is definitely you know they they definitely Disney got their dollars worth <laughs> from those because yeah. each of them <laughs> traveled about sixty-seven thousand five hundred miles per year. There was about ten million miles of travel on all of them, and they had a reliability rate of ninety-nine point nine percent in an eighteen-hour day, which is just absolutely amazing. Now, although the original Mark IV trains were built by Martin Marietta, the new Mark VI's were going to be built by Bombardier, which at the time was the largest mass transit manufacturer in North America. And, and Disney really did a very exhaustive search uh, to find internationally to find out who would be able to build this next generation uh, and fleet of monorail vehicles. And uh, like I said, they started in 1989. In addition to just being newer... There were a lot of benefits to them. There was a 30% increase in guest capacity. The trains were taller. Not that that was ever an issue for me. Um, There was now seats as well as standing room. So you you could actually stand up and grab the pole. Um, Obviously, the sliding door systems were were much more convenient for both guests as well as for cast members. There were better better suspension, better air conditioning, much needed. Um, And the... um, the the new trains actually exceeded U.S. standards for things like flammability, smoke, and toxicity. So the first of the new trains, which was actually Monorail Blue, a little trivia fact there, that arrived on Disney property on June 8th, 1989. The latest one to be installed was in 1993, and that was Monorail Coral. Uh, Each train has six cars, and they're permanently coupled with articulated joints in between them. And uh, actually, you know, speaking of upgrades to them, they're currently undergoing an upgrade right now. Um, There's some minor modifications that have been going on probably over the past year or so, both to the guest areas as well as uh, the pilot's uh, cockpit. So some of the design changes that are, that are taking place right now, um, and we're not going to talk about the the new Year of a Million Dreams paint job, but there's a new ride control system. Uh, and that was kind of been started to be installed uh, early this year and in the, uh, in the pilot and what there, there used to be. Was kind of a joystick control that, that the pilots would use, and now it's a touchscreen called an LMCU control system that they use. And uh, from what I understand of that, the monorails actually run on Windows, believe it or not. So, and inside inside X, the monorails,
0: XP or Vista.
2: I'm sure it's definitely not Vista, but anyway. <laughs> but. Um, you know, one thing we didn't mention real quick um, before we get back to some of the upgrades that are going on is people say, well, where do they put the monorails at night? You know, when the monorails aren't in operation, where do they put them? And originally there were only 10 monorails that were built and, and planned for. So when they added the um, Coral and Lime to make it 12, they didn't have enough room in the storage or maintenance facilities behind the park. And you can kind of follow as you kind of go towards the contemporary. You can see. The, the Roundhouse, even though it's square, where they store them. So because there's two monorails a night, have to stay outside. And they really, what they do is they make sure they don't keep one monorail outside the Roundhouse for more than two nights in a row. Um, so they'll keep it maybe in the Grand Floridian or the Polynesian or leave and dock it inside the Contemporary, especially if the weather's bad and things like that. But the other changes that are going on that I, that I alluded to were... Uh, things that we've talked about on the show, in in the news and rumors section, the the guest seating area inside, uh, and the removal of the jump seats in the middle, and the carpet's been taken out, kind of cleaning it up and and keeping it um, a little fresher inside. So, a couple little fun facts, and we're going to talk about some of those intangibles that we mentioned earlier. Uh, the Disney World monorail system is the most heavily traveled passenger monorail system in the world. It carries an average of about 150,000 passengers every day with a maximum capacity of 200,000. Each year, they transport more than 50 million people. And since Walt Disney World opened in 1971, has carried over 1 billion. Let's see. If a monorail breaks down, you know, what do you do? Do you get out and push? No, they actually have these these tractors that come out. And if you've ever seen this, this is actually pretty neat. These There's three different tractors that can come out and basically tow these monorails back to the roundhouse. Now, you say, well, what happens if there's a power failure? You don't have to worry the power. The tractors actually run on diesel. So if if the power does go down, the monorail does get stuck, they can come out and tow it back. Jeff, remember when they put um, Monorail Red up for sale on eBay a few years ago?
0: Yeah, was that when Disney just started doing their their auctions, or did did a private owner have it?
2: Well, I remember it went up uh, up for sale at one point, and somebody actually by the name of, of Chip Young from Georgia Won it? It was Monorail Red. Uh, after it was decommissioned in, in January of '93, I think they uh, they put it up, and then it showed up on eBay again. And here's a quick little funny story. I was telling my dad about it. Obviously, you know all the times I went as a kid with my parents, and, and I just have real fond memories about going on them. So we, we were away, and I and I fired up the internet and I showed it to him. And, and the winning, the, the high bid at that point was like $15,000. And I know it had been up once before and the bidding had gone up to like sixty, but the reserve wasn't met. So we're kidding around. He's like, oh, put a bid on it. got and put a bid on it just for fun. I was like, dad, this is not, you know, this is no joke. This, this is eBay and blah. He says, ah, don't worry about it, whatever. He goes, put a bid in for like $30,000. I'm like, well, okay. I was like, just so you know, if I win, forget half, you're gonna have to kind of cover this for me for a while. <laughs> so I did, I bid $30,000 and one cent. And I was a high bidder for like four days. So what was starting to be a joke, you know, and my wife thought was kind of cute at first, um, ended up not being all that funny. She's like, you know, we have a kid on our way and we live in a condo. Where are you going to put a monorail? So I'm like, Dad, you know, you got my back with that, the whole monorail thing and everything. But the, the bidding ended up going to like 70 something thousand. And I, and I think um, it ended up selling for much later. But it, for a long time, and I think it's still there, it was out over at Mouse Surplus. In Orlando, and I've actually seen it. I've been inside the monorail red cab, and it just—it's just the front car, but it, it's exactly what it was. And the, the control panels there, and everything's there, and you know, it, again, it begs the question: What do you do? And I'm like, I don't know. We can have like you know, make it like picnic tables inside, and you know, eat outside <laughs> in the monorail. <laughs> that would be the ultimate collectible, assuming money and space was was no object.
0: So, but you got to figure that what the other ten of them are somewhere, you know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, you don't want
0: well, somebody's backyard. I mean. Well, they
2: did sell some of them to... They were actually used in Las Vegas for, for some time. They sold them to Bally's, and they used them uh, in uh, at the time, the new Las Vegas monorail system. They, they've they since been decommissioned from there as well, and they've upgraded to a a, a much newer system. But yeah, that, that's where a, a few of them had gone. I think it was... Um, I think they sold Lime and... I don't remember the other one that that, that they sold that was out there actually being used. But, yeah, who knows? Who knows where the other ones are at this point? Um, But I remember seeing the picture of the guy that literally had it just sitting in his farm, just sitting in the middle of his farm um, doing nothing, So, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, again, I, I would love to have a monorail theoretically, and I guess it's because of those intangibles that we were talking about, and that's why it really qualifies as a wonder.
0: Well, what's interesting is if you go back to Disneyland and you had the monorail in Disneyland at 59 and it's still it's still running there today but, you know, when you look at the overall Disney theme park kind of mythology and, you know, the iconic images and everything like that it really wasn't until Disney World where the actual concept of the monorail really took on this kind of really iconic status and I think there's there's a lot to do with it. I think, you know... The, the, the monorail at Disneyland is very a part of Tomorrowland. It was a ride until it was ultimately, you know, later extended to the Disneyland Hotel. But it was relatively low to the ground, and it really didn't have the scope of the um, the Disney World version. And what I mean is this: you have the whole Phase One of you know Disney World, you know, going around Bay Lake and the Seven Seas Lagoon. And the monorail is integral to that whole system, to that whole infrastructure there. And when you combine that with it going through the contemporary resort, that, that's where it becomes so legendary. Uh, I just remember very distinctly um, at the opening uh, credits of the uh, Disney Wonderful World of Disney show in the 1970s, You know, they show pictures of the castle at Disneyland. They show characters running around you know, in that kind of film montage. But one of the key images they show from Disney World is the monorail, going through the Contemporary Resort. And I think that in and of itself was when, you know, especially back in the 70s and early 80s when families and kids were going, that's when you say the monorail was an attraction in of in and of itself. When it goes through the Contemporary Resort, that is just, that is a moment in time. That is, you know, when you first do that, your first visit, I mean, that is just something very, very special.
2: Yeah, between being inside the monorail and especially when you're on the Express Loop, and, and you're kind of just you know flying through it. Or if you're sitting down at Chef Mickey's or the Concourse State House, and that that very distinct sound of the monorail running overhead, or if you stay in the tower and look down and see the monorails going through, there, there's something about that. There's some sort of feeling that that gives you that that you don't get anywhere else. And I think that's exactly well, what you're trying to do.
0: right. And and I think too, you know, if if you know if anybody is any kind of science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, fan or whatever. When you, like when you just said, when you're sit sitting in a restaurant or walking through uh, the grand concourse of, you know, the contemporary, and the monorail passes through, it, it for a moment you feel like you're in the future. I mean, you feel like you are in that city of the future that you just can't find anywhere else, you know, in the United States.
2: Well, that's really what Walt wanted. I mean, the monorail here, like you said, unlike Disneyland, really was meant to be a transportation system, and it also was going to be planned to be part of Epcot the city that was really what Walt's big dream was as we know that and Walt was very concerned about environmental problems and problems with transportation and pollution and and congestions and that's some of the things that he wanted to get rid of in his future utopian style city so to that end he actually designed this transportation lobby which was going to be hidden underground beneath this giant 30 story hotel so uh, sort of like the contemporary that these monorails instead of going through it would actually go under it and this terminal would keep these sort of transportation system out of place, but one of the systems that would be in there was a high-speed monorail for the rapid transit kind of going over the long distances, and the second was going to be the Wedway people mover, which was going to kind of go through um, some of the shorter shuttles back and forth to shopping and schools and, and things like that. But all these things would travel below the pedestrian level. So he really was almost testing it um, for the future for what he was going to have o- over in Epcot
0: it's it's just it's a magical experience i I just you know i can't i just i just very much go back to my first visit in 1973 and just the monorail also really in a in a way represents anticipation it was you know you park your car you ride the tram and then you get on the monorail and then it is that trip from the ticket and transportation center to the magic kingdom and along the way you're looking out the window trying to see the castle it's it was a moment that was just all about just this building building excitement and it's still you know 25 30 years later it's still you know when i ride the monorail to the magic kingdom there's still that sense of here we go you know we're on our way to to the magic kingdom and it's just a lot of a lot of excitement and also look, can we let why don't we uh, actually throw in a bit of a hidden treasure within our seven wonders segment sure um you know this is no big secret but it, it's kind of I think a lot of people out there still don't realize that they can do it and that is the the very fun thing of riding in the front of the monorail uh, you can pretty much do it as long as you're willing to be patient and it's just always a matter of just heading up to the front uh, station or the front you know queue area and asking and they even have, usually have the rail set up to go in that way but especially the ride from the Ticket and Transportation Center to Epcot and where you go around the loop through Future World is really something to see because you get a very, very great vantage point when you're up there in in the in the cockpit. Yeah. And and at the end, they hand you your uh, Monorail co-pilot's uh, license.
2: That's right. And you get a different different experience going through day and night and, and taking that trip, especially when you go through Epcot and you kind of go around Spaceship Earth uh, into Future World and during the holiday times when they have the... All the lights on and, and the uh, things like that. That that's really something you know, pretty spectacular. But you know what? I, I think what I found and and what I, believe it or not, have a tough time doing is almost articulating what it is about the monorail. Because the I received so many emails about it and so many posts, but they all kinda of said the same thing and they couldn't really describe why it was. You know, they they, they wanted to, to plug the monorail and they said what an icon it was and it just everybody talked about it being something more special and and it was their favorite attraction and um, it's not the fastest and it's most exciting and I'm paraphrasing many of the emails that I have written out here and somebody even says, you know, I can't think of, of the exact reason to nominate the monorail other than just the strong impression it leaves and honestly, who doesn't go to Walt Disney World and ride it? There's monorails in other places but none as distinct in Disney's they talk about Walt's vision, about modernizing the transportation system, but I think that that's true. I think we all probably acknowledge that it is one of the seven wonders, arguably, but but I have a tough time saying what it is about that experience that, that leaves such a lasting impression.
0: It's I think it's just it's it's just one other aspect that just takes you out of the real world and really makes you feel that you're somewhere special.
2: And that the whole, and I'm going to butcher the Spanish language here, but the whole, you know, (laughs) por favor, manténganse, alejado, you know, we all know it. We all know it. And it it means so much to us. And I'm sure for many people, that's probably their first introduction (laughs) into the Spanish language.
0: And and again, we we would be remiss in not acknowledging a very big part of, of the monorail is the Jack Wagner narrations. Um, Jack Back Wagner, as uh, Jonathan, I believe, profiled in one of the earlier episodes, you know, was literally the voice of Disneyland and uh, Disney World up until his uh, passing. And um, I think it was in the late 90s. Uh, he is this very distinct. I mean, when I think of the monorail and I, I think of those narrations, I, I mean, they're, they a few years ago, Disney um, in their Disney Forever CD kiosk, they made his monorail narrations available that were from the, that initial uh, first couple years. And it just brought back such incredible memories from there. Because he's talking about the water ski show, and he's talking about all the different lands. And his voice was so distinct, and so welcoming, and so friendly. And that is still the voice you hear doing the Spanish, Uh, please stay clear of the doors.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, as you board, please move all the way across your car to make room for everyone. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails and stay clear of the doors. Please stand clear of the doors. Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas. As you board, please continue moving across your car to make room for everyone. And now, ladies and
2: gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. Today, you'll be seeing what we call Phase 1, which stretches more than three miles east to west and two miles north to south. But that's just the beginning. We have many exciting plans for the future. Walt Disney World covers 43 square miles. That's about twice the size of the
4: island of Manhattan. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express monorail, our highway in the sky to the Magic Kingdom. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking, please. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I was very disappointed when they when they updated a little bit, and I know Corey Burton did some great voice work and some other people did some great voice work, and... Unfortunately, some of the original Jack Wagner, because that voice just resonates in your mind. Yes, and if you yeah. close your eyes and you think about it, you can hear it. And, it, and it, it's, it's so distinctly a part of, of the monorail experience. Yeah, that, that voice is just one of those childhood memories that I have. And, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that when I, when I get on the monorail, when I first get to Disney and the first time you hear it, it can't help but bring a smile to your face.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it just, it really brings back the nostalgia, especially of those first 10 to 15 years that the park was open.
2: You know, talking about being remiss and not saying something. Well, one thing we should talk about, too, have been rumors about the monorail that have gone on for a, a number of years. Uh, the big rumor really is that they they would be expanding the monorail system uh, to include either MGM, uh, going through the Swan and the Dolphin. There's been a long-standing urban legend myth rumor whatever you want to call that if you look at the swan and dolphin buildings in the center is a black square and that black square is supposed to designate the area of the building that they would carve out so that a monorail could go right through the center of the building much like the contemporary um, from my understanding is, is that that's not true um, it's just it's an aesthetic thing it's not a um, okay guys here's the blueprint here's the plan here's where you basically cut out the center of the building so a monorail could pass by
0: yeah, actually, the only reference um, in all the reading that I've done to an actual fairly reliable source about, you know, talking about monorail expansion was uh, Jeff Curdy in, in the book uh, Since the World, Be- World Began, that was a history of Walt Disney World that was published, I believe, during its 25th anniversary. He made mention that, that in the early going, there were future plans then to connect the monorail, possibly to Lake Buena Vista, where at that time they were building the uh, shopping village uh, that ultimately evolved into the marketplace in uh, downtown Disney. And that's the only reference I've ever seen of an actual non kind of sort of unsubstantiated rumor of some type of, you know, expansion.
2: Yeah, connecting it to, to the other theme parks has probably just been something that many of us have dreamed about. I mean, you have to understand, too, the amount of dollars you're talking about, not only just to build the stations, but, you know, the, in back in 1982 dollars, it was about a million dollars a mile to build uh, you know, to build the monorail track itself—not even talking about the monorails—and uh, you're right about um, going to Downtown Disney. And there was actually concept art that I remember seeing of the monorail going down. Because remember, too, that area is going to be a residential community, so they wanted to right. tie that all together. Again, part of Walt's grand vision of making. Epcot the city and everything else that was going to surround it interconnected using these kind of transportation systems. So, uh, would I love to see a monorail to Disney's Animal Kingdom? I think that would be awesome. Do I think it's ever going to happen? Probably not, you know, at least maybe in our lifetime, or at least probably not in the next, you know, couple of decades before you see something like that take place.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, when you really boil it down and you say that, you know, everybody was talking about just, just really not being able to to put your finger on it exactly, but at the same time, it's interesting that, you know, if you if you were sitting in the psychoanalyst chair and you were doing word association, you know, like you said, monorails have been around, you know, predating Disney by a long time, and the term monorail has been around for quite a quite a long time. But if you do say monorail, I would bet that nine chances out of ten, the person is going to respond by saying Disney. All
2: right. And when you say Disney, when you say Walt Disney World, many people are going to instantly think monorail. You know, monorail. Think monorail after, you know, maybe after the castle, and, and again, Julie in, in your case. But. Pecos Bill in my case, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I said, the the, uh, the overwhelming number of responses talked about it in that intangible sense, uh, as opposed to an engineering feat or talking about the the you know the um, the structures themselves or anything like that. It, it's that intangible quality, that nostalgic quality. So. Um, that really is what makes it one of the true seven wonders of Walt Disney World. And uh, Jeff, thank you for coming on again and exploring next in the series. We have a few more to go, including the cast members that we're going to do kind of a different kind of show on so we can uh, profile some of the things that people had sent in for that. But, uh, you know, if you have your own monorail thoughts and, and you know, memories and recollections and feelings about whether you think it is or is not One of the Seven Wonders, by all means, still feel free to weigh in. You can email the show or call on the show or post on the forums at DisneyWorldTribute.com. And, of course, make sure you go and head out and check out Jeff's blog over at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. It's a lot of fun. You know Jeff definitely knows his stuff and puts a great positive spin on all things Disney.
0: Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it.
2: It's time to announce the winner of our very first Where in the World Have You Seen This Contest. In the past, I've done a number of Where in the World Have You Heard This Contest where I've played audio clues from Walt Disney World attractions and shows and asked you to identify them. While we thought it was going to be fun this time to give you three photo clues that I posted over at the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Didn't think they were all that hard, but then again, I forgot what a true geek I am. If you paid attention and you went back to the forums to look at the pictures, you actually will see that I posted a hint at one point under the clues for what I thought was probably the toughest one, which was the first. Um, and the clue was, not everything that's Chinese can be found in China. And that probably doesn't make any sense to you now if you didn't get it. But hopefully when I explain what the pictures were, it will. So photo number one, I'll give you the answers first, then I'll tell you who our winner was. Photo number one was of the, a Chinese statue above the Great Movie Ride sign at the Chinese Theater located at the Disney MGM Studios. And again, it was kind of these, one of these obscure things, but that where it was where the clue was for. Not everything that's Chinese can be found in China. Man's Chinese Theater, not China, but there you go. Picture number two was of an elephant statue, and that was in the water, and that was over at Shrunken Ned's Junior Jungle Boats. That's right next to the Jungle Cruise. That's where for about 50 cents you can kind of Uh, Man the wheel and be the skipper of your own little kind of miniature jungle cruise radio-controlled boat. That one ended up proving to be a little tricky, too. A lot of people thought that was in Asia, maybe on Cali River Rapids, somewhere else uh, in Asia, in Disney's Animal Kingdom. But picture number three, most people got right, and that was of the Clock Tower in the Germany Pavilion in in Epcot. And uh, some of you actually thought it was It's a Small World and a couple other interesting ideas. But, uh, yeah, that was in the plaza that overlooks the St. George's Plaza uh, in, in Epcot's World Showcase. So we did receive a number of people that had all three correct entries, and the winner that was chosen at random from all the correct entries kind of had a had a good idea that he was going to win because he said, thanks in advance for the prizes, and he was kidding, of course, but he did win, and that was Matt Roche, and he won the Magic for Less gift pack with the backpack and the neck wallet as well as a bunch of other things in there, or he can win the... the uh, Two copies of the Walt Disney World trivia books. Matt, just do me a favor. Send me over your information where I can send your prizes to and what you would prefer. So that's it. That was our first Where in the World Have You Seen This contest. We're going to do some more of these as well as go back to our Where in the World Have You Heard This contest in upcoming weeks. Don't forget we also have the Marathon Challenge contest, which is going to be going on for the next 13 weeks. So there's a lot of of fun events going on, a lot of fun contests. So make sure you keep on checking back and stay tuned for more. You may have heard me talk about the Disney World Trivia Dream Team project in the past and maybe not known what I was really talking about. Well, what really started out as a simple name that I gave to my efforts to raise money to help send pediatric cancer patients to Walt Disney World has grown to be so much more than that. I started out by and continue to take a portion of the proceeds from the sale of my books and donated it towards the cause. Um, but the past two years have really become something special. And that's really due to in large part to the idea and efforts of so many people who have donated to the project, and especially thanks to the volunteers who've helped this turn into something even more and beyond what I ever could have expected. And in fact, thanks to the idea and the efforts of my next guest, we've really been able to accomplish some wonderful things and bring some of the Disney magic to some children that really need it. I want to welcome to the WDW radio show, Pat Whitson from DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Hi there,
3: thanks for having me on the show.
2: Oh, Pat, thank you. Pat uh, is the person who really came up with the idea of taking the Dream Team efforts to the next level. And she suggested that we hold a fundraising auction at Fred Block's Magic Meet event last year. Uh, Fred was very kind enough to give us the time and the space and the resources to hold the event. And really thanks to the overwhelming donations of Disney items from people really around the globe, uh, including a one-of-a-kind piece of original artwork from Disney artist Brian Blackmore, and the tireless efforts of the volunteers that, that gave their time and efforts. We were able to raise enough money to grant the wishes of two children and send them to Walt Disney world. Uh, thanks to the help of the starlight Starbright foundation.
3: Yes. That was a wonderful experience for our first time out trying to do this. I really have to say though, the idea actually is it's all Kelly's fault. Uh, <laughs> she was the one who started talking to me with the idea about, uh, a Chinese auction that they were having for her alumni association, and she casually said, "Gee, wouldn't it be great if we could do something for the Dream Team this way?" And I said, "I'll talk to Lou." And then the he, you said yes, and she said, "I can't make it to the Magic Meet." <laughs> so, so the uh, efforts from last year, yes, the it. it I spearheaded the idea but it definitely was a team effort and this year again also it is a huge team effort that uh, it it definitely goes around we have people over in the UK who have sent us things all across the country who have sent donations and it's just been such an exciting process to be a part of
2: yeah and we're just blessed to be surrounded by so many people who volunteer not only you know donations but their time during the auctions and Pat this year you're again you know, the, the Dream Team auction coordinator, Fred, has once again generously given us space in the main ballroom this year at the sold-out Magic Meat event in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on July 14th for our second annual auction. Pat, you and the volunteers have already been hard at work preparing for this year's event, really for, for some time now, kind of almost immediately after last year's event ended. What What's been kind of going on behind the scenes?
3: Well, behind the scenes, we did immediately after the meet ended. Everybody starts as, "What are we going to do next year?" And uh, <laughs> we said, "At least give me a week to recover." And uh, they real, the bulk of the work started just after the new year this year, when we sat down and uh, actually online sat down and talked to each other, came up with a list of suggested theme baskets, things that we wanted to do that they were uh, a little different than last year's efforts. What worked best last year, what worked didn't work so well, so we took into account a lot of feedback to make this year's event even better than last year's. And we've been working for, since then, collecting donations, uh, packaging them into assorted lots, a lot of themed baskets with many different items in each basket, collectibles, other special items and uh, preparing everything so that we have a very well-organized and uh, smoothly run event at the Magic Meet, which uh, again, we are very grateful to Fred Block for the space. He's given us uh, a much larger area this year. And uh, for which we're very grateful, because as you'll find out, we have much more to offer this year.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and space and really time is at at a premium at the Magic Meet, so we're we're lucky to have the opportunity. Tell us about some of the donations that we've got, some of some of the baskets that you guys have have put together, because there's many of them and they're they're pretty incredible and run the gamut of different types of items.
3: They certainly do. We are currently sitting at about 115 different items uh, there and they vary from collectibles such as uh, Walt Disney's classic collection figurines, uh, brand new snow globes, uh, historic documents, uh, you know, uh, papers from the 20th anniversary of Walt Disney World, the 25th anniversary. Uh, we have toys and games, packet, uh, baskets for kids and adults who still act like kids. Uh, game night, uh, Adventures of Peter Pan, all different. That's mine. Uh, that
2: one's mine. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm just letting you know
2: I'm bidding on that one. So
3: <laughs> we have a wonderful, uh, generous donation was made of a huge collection of Disney store beanies, the the original plush beanies when they first started coming out and were such the craze. We've got uh, things to make your trip to Walt Disney World more fun. We've got some travel lots. There's a portable DVD player and movie library to keep uh, entertained in the car or on the plane. We've got holiday items. We have a beautiful handcrafted Mickey head wreath. Uh, Pin collectors, there's stuff for you. There's jumbo pins, there are pin frames, super jumbo. Pirates of the Caribbean, Adventures in the Seven Seas, Lagoon, uh, Incredible, Pin in the Case. That that one's got, you know, my eye.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're definitely. You know, I, we went. We had kind of a little auction wrap party a few weeks ago, and and you can see some of us were kind of drooling over specific baskets. But what we'll do, Pat, is we'll put a link up in the show notes because we have pictures of most of the auction lots up in the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com so you can take a look and see. Now, we should kind of just make it clear that unfortunately or fortunately the meet is sold out, so the only way you can bid on these is if you're attending the meet, uh, but for those of you that are coming, kind of gives you an idea of what's to come, and for those of you who maybe didn't get in this year, this is something to look forward to, uh, hopefully if you you make it you know, to Harrisburg um, again next year, because like I said, it, it does run the gamut, there's uh, smaller ticket items and bigger ticket items and there's artwork and people in the disney community whether they be you know other webmasters and authors and things like that have donated so generously and everything that we have here w- was all through uh donations that, that you are able to obtain and, and there's some of those items are, are very unique i know you're putting together something with uh with one of the speakers at uh, at the magic meets which is something that's gonna be a lot of fun
3: Yes, there is something in the works. I can't reveal all the details about it right now, but a a certain author who likes to find hidden things uh, has...
2: Oh, that's not too much of a big secret.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Without naming names, has uh, uh, offered a very, very exciting... Lots and uh, something that uh, will be a big ticket item. So if this is piquing your interest, uh, be prepared because uh, it is something that is going to be a truly unique opportunity. Yeah.
2: It's an experience. It's not. It's not just you know, a yes. little signed book or anything. It's something. It's something pretty unique. And and this person, gee, I wonder who we're talking about. Was was very very kind in in what he's going to do. So yeah, we'll, we'll kind of tease that a little bit more. Um, You know, just for for the meat itself. But um, the other thing we should probably talk about, Pat, is uh, is what this is going to benefit. What the Dream Team project actually does in the past the dream team project has worked with the starlight Starbright children's foundation uh, with the, with the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut chapter in granting the wishes of children to go to Walt Disney world. Unfortunately, they no longer do that. They no longer participate in the wish granting program. So this year, uh, our efforts will be to benefit the make a wish foundation of America. And we should also um, be very clear that a hundred percent of the proceeds, everything that we take in does go right to the charity.
3: Yes, that's correct. We, we, Everything has been donated, every item has been donated, and every dollar that we collect is going to Make-A-Wish.
2: Yeah, this started out really, this is something very personal to me because of experiences I've had in my family, you know, with people um, that have suffered with cancer and experiences at Sloan Kettering, and that's kind of where I got the idea from. And I'm really happy to be able to, you know, support the Make-A-Wish Foundation and do it this way because they are such a trusted and, and such a reputable uh, organization and the work that they do with Disney and making these wishes come true uh, is really something special. And I'm going to put a link up in the show notes page. You can go over to DisneyWorldTrivia.com slash Dream Team for more information to find out about what we're doing. We've also set up a donation page. If you want to donate anything to the Dream Team Project to benefit Make-A-Wish, we have a page over at firstgiving.com where you can go and, and make a secure donation. And remember, all that money, too, goes right into the First Giving thing. They um, then send that money over to uh, to, to Make-A-Wish to benefit these kids. So I'm really excited about um, the project, and I'm really very excited about what we've got planned for this year's auction. Like I said, it's going to be bigger, it's going to be better, and it's going to be a lot of fun this year.
3: It's going to be spectacular. Um, can I just give a little bit about the format of the auction and what people who are there should expect. Sure. Okay. Uh, It is a silent auction, which means that uh, there will be a sheet in front of each item that if you're interested in bidding in, you write your name and the amount you're willing to bid right on that sheet. And the highest dollar at the end of bidding is the person who gets to buy the item. So very simple, very easy to, uh, to get your bids in. Uh, This year, one thing that we did uh, at Fred's request, as well as in uh, response to the feedback that we received, there's going to be only a single round. All of our items will be out at one time. Uh, Last year, because of space and time, we did things in 25 lot increments, which... uh, was a little confusing I know it wasn't the the ideal situation so this year we have everything all at once so make sure when you arrive at the meet you come on over take a look start placing your bids and we will be making sure that bidding ends during a time when everybody's in the main ballroom and at the moment uh, I believe it's scheduled to end during dessert so you know have your piece of cake come over place your final bids and uh, we'll be able to announce the winning bids uh, Shortly after dessert,
2: yeah, and this format is great because it's a lot of fun because you keep going back and you keep checking and kind of you know guarding your your, your favorite items. But uh, I like you said, I think this year is going to be bigger. It's going to be better. Pat, last year, what, what was the the approximate dollar figure that we were able to raise just from the auction?
3: From uh, the auction, including the Brian Blackmore painting, we raised just over thirty eight hundred dollars.
2: So yeah, that that was far above and beyond any uh, anything I could have expected. And then my reaction of standing there agape and actually speechless, which, as we know for Lou, is very <laughs> tough to do. No comments from the peanut gallery. Um, I just I can't imagine what this year is going to be like. And, and Pat, again, I really need to thank you specifically, as well as everybody that volunteered, everybody that continues to donate their time and their efforts and their merchandise uh, and, you know, monetary donations. Um, again, this is far exceeded... Anything I could have expected, and, and it means a great deal to me personally, what everybody's done. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you again. And again, I'm going to put links up in the show notes page where you can go. If you head on over to DisneyWorldTrivia.com, you can click on the link for Dream Team to find out more. And if you are coming to the Magic Meets in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, you're for a special treat. Really looking forward to it. Pat Whitson, Disney Dame 2004. Thank you again for everything. Thank you for coming on the show.
3: Thank you, though.
2: As I mentioned last week, this is the first of our 13-part Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge, where you get to play a new challenge every two weeks for a chance to win all kinds of great prizes, as well as get to name the respective mile marker during the Walt Disney World Half Marathon in January, which I will supposedly be running in. You're also going to be able to get a custom certificate suitable for framing to congratulate you for your efforts. Also, as part of the contest, Eric Hollister, owner of geomouse.com, is generously donating $100 per mile to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. And I want to welcome Eric to the very first of our, uh, of our marathon challenges. What's going on, Lou? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I, I am excited about this. And like I said on last week's show, Eric, this, this was your uh, great idea. And like I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun for us. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for the listeners. And, um, and, and your incredibly generous donation is really going to go to a good cause.
1: Well, and, you know, when you say 13, it really doesn't sound like that much. So, I mean, it should just make the race flow
2: smoothly. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Again, let's not let's not talk about my training or lack thereof. But anyway, the other thing I forgot to mention, too, Eric, was at the end of the contest, we're going to have a drawing uh, of all the 13 winners for a yet-to-be-announced grand prize, which, well, I guess it's just going to say going to be, well, grand. Do you
1: think we could sell them on the fact that uh, the winner of that grand prize challenge will get to run in the 2009 full marathon <laughs> how about that for- the goofy race and a half challenge uh. exactly <laughs> so there, there might be a lot of listeners that are just like i'm not participating in this challenge what are they trying to pull <laughs> exactly
2: so yeah what what are what we plan to do is we're going to do a challenge every two weeks um so this challenge number one uh is going to start on july 1st the end date is going to be july 11th and then the next week after we'll start the next challenge so you definitely have to try and keep up on your shows, so you can participate and get your answers in. And the first challenge is going to be the Walt Disney World trivia challenge. And what I've done is I've put together a list of three Walt Disney World trivia questions for you to answer. Now they're not all. All the challenges are not going to be trivia questions. They're we're going to involve some other uh, friends of the show, and there's going to be all different types of challenges. But this is what we're going to do to kind of kick things off. So all you have to do is send your your guesses and your uh, designated name of the mile marker so in case you win tell us what you'd like to name your first mile for the half marathon and send them via email to marathon at dot we'll put all the correct submissions in a random drawing we'll pull um after the end date of the challenge and we'll obviously announce them on the show uh, on the week of july 15th absolutely and uh, let's talk about some of the prizes the the oh so valuable prizes they can win for the first of the Marathon Challenge.
1: Exactly. It's all about the prizes. That's right. <laughs> so, well,
2: <laughs> go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, go for it, Lou.
2: All right. We have um, signed and personalized valuable copies of the Walt Disney World Trivia Books, Volume 1 and 2, a DisneyWorldTrivia.com shirt, pin, lanyards. Uh, we also have two non-Disney World trivia-related items donated by you. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what you what, what else is part of the prize package?
1: Sure. Well, if anybody's been living under a rock for the last month, I'm sure most of us are familiar with uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, franchise. So we've got both the Jack Sparrow and Davy Jones bobblehead dolls that will be a part of this prize package as well.
2: Cool. Cool. And like I said, don't forget, send your entries into marathon at wdwradio.com and uh, name, name your miles pick your name mile keep it clean folks family friendly podcast so alright let's go ahead um, let's go ahead and ask the three questions and uh, and let's get this challenge started what do you say
1: sounds like a plan
2: alright the first question for the Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge for mile marker number one is what is the name of the warden in the Kilimanjaro Safari number two name the two corporations that once sponsored Space Mountain and you must name them both and the third and final question, and these hopefully don't aren't too hard, is what award does Professor Wayne Zelensky receive? And you obviously have to know where that's from so you can tell us what award he received. So what, what do you think, Eric? Are those worthy you know, of a
1: challenge? Absolutely, absolutely. So all, all submissions must be in to the email address, marathon at wdwradio.com by 11:59 on july 11th and that's eastern standard time and we will go ahead and all correct submissions we will pull together and randomly draw a winner
2: cool and yeah we'll obviously put the names uh and the name of the mile markers we'll keep a running list we're going to give you a certificate with both of those we're also going to post them on the wdw website as well as the geomouse website absolutely and you are getting uh day by day you're inching closer getting ready to launch is that correct Inch by,
1: I think I am on the Lumangello half marathon training when it comes to my, no, I'm just joking. Uh, no, we are still moving forward August 1st. We should be up and running. If for some reason we're not, uh, I'll be sure to update everybody accordingly. But if you wanted to go to geomouse.com, we will have uh, all the information rules for this first challenge along with the prizes uh, that will be a part of it. So at the very least, you can go there and. Read over the rules and the challenges themselves, along with listening to it on this podcast.
2: Excellent. And and again, Eric, thank you very much for the idea. Thank you for the donation of the bobbleheads, as well as the $100 per mile challenge. And again, that's going to go to the DisneyWorldTribute.com Dream Team project. That's going to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation. For more information on what we're doing, and if you want to uh, to make a donation, you can head on over to DisneyWorldTribute.com slash Dream Team There you can also find a link to the uh, securefirstgiving.com website where you can make your donations directly there. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm happy we got this thing kicked off. and, uh, And good luck, everybody. Absolutely. Good luck. To start off this week's email segment, I want to read to you a couple of emails that aren't really questions but more comments from listeners, as I got a flurry of emails about the discussion and comments about gadgets in the parks. The first comes from Chris Reynak, who says, Love the show and all the trivia. I was listening to last week's podcast when I heard you read the email from the listener who thought it'd be great to have content, wait time info, and other Disney trivia downloaded to a PDA or some other type of device. I agree with you that kids staring down at screens would take away from the family Disney experience that Walt had intended. But as you are reading the email, something came to mind that the Imagineers at Disney have already created that I believe serves the purpose without the pitfalls. Pal Mickey, we picked up one of these for my daughter last year at the Magic Kingdom and my kids were thrilled with it, as were we. It told us everything from shortcuts to take through the parks, to short wait lines and trivia information. I became so fascinated by the device then I looked up information on how it worked, enjoying tech-type things myself. I was amazed that the Imagineers had gone to such length to discreetly place transmitters throughout the park to communicate with Mickey and keep you up-to-date on what was going on. When we go back to Disney, he will sure to go with us. Best regards, Chris. Chris, you're right. I completely forgot to mention pal Mickey. Uh, he, is a, he is basically a, a Mickey Mouse plush that does have um, some electronics inside, and as you walk through the park and from different attractions... He'll talk to you about uh, trivia for some of the things. He'll also um, do some other kind of interactive things, and he'll gel- tell jokes and things like that. And he runs about $65. Um, you can also rent them. I believe you still can rent them. You can also purchase them throughout all the parks. Um, but you're right. It's very different than actually having to look down and stare at a screen as opposed to carrying pal Mickey Ron that everybody can enjoy in the family. I received one other email, and this came from Armando in Juarez, Mexico, who writes Lou, I'm a new listener and congratulate you on a fine podcast. I just finished listening to Show 19, where you would discuss the new features for the Nintendo DS if you bring it to the Magic Kingdom and download extra content. I have to agree with you 120%. I hate going to the parks and seeing families together, but each member plugged into something and really not together. I'm positive that if Walt was still with us, he would even ban cell phones at the park and only have designated areas for use on their property. Kids nowadays don't know how to have a conversation unless it's with their fingers or on a cell phone. I remember not long ago when vehicles didn't have DVD players or iPods or anything. You were lucky if they had a a crummy FM radio. I'm the father of three boys and I get furious every weekend that we go into the SUV and the kids immediately want the DVD fired up. I agree with you that they're fine for the long plane trip or long car trips. Last year we took a trip down to Walt Disney World and agreed to ban any gadget once we got on site and even the cell phones were turned off. I cannot tell you how different our trip was. I enjoyed the boys and my wife tremendously. So now every time we take a trip down, once we arrive at our destination, we will be gadget free. Thanks for the hard work, Armando. Armando, thank you. And again, these two emails were were indicative of an overwhelming number of emails I got about this. And many of you mentioned Walt Disney specifically, that you didn't think that that's really what Walt would have wanted because he did want people to go together as family and enjoy family time together, and having people staring down or having kids staring down at the Nintendo DSs or other devices would kind of defeat that purpose. I also got an email from Bruce from MagicalThemeParks.com. I'll put a link up in the show notes. Who says, Hi, Lou, I was listening to your latest podcast when you spoke about the juggler from the Hunchback pre-show at the Disney MGM Studios I believe I have a video of him on my site. He gives me a link over at Magical Theme Parks in case, uh, and if you wanted to see exactly who we were talking about again, I'll put that up in this week's show notes. And I want to thank Bruce from magicalthemeparks.com for sharing that with us. Next email says Have you ever tried the chef's table over at Victoria and Albert's? I've been trying for the longest time to get a reservation. My wife and I are going for 11 days in September and 8 days in December. We went last September and February as well. Every time I book a vacation, I wait exactly 180 days before I arrive, start calling every morning at 7 a.m. to try and book the chef's table. 180 days before my first day, I call, and then I call back the next morning, because that's 180 days before my second day, and so on. I have never been able to score a reservation, though. The cast member says somebody just beat me to it every single time. Just wondering if anybody knows some secret way to get the popular table. Love the podcast, especially the rumor mill. That's from Ryan in Manchester, New Hampshire. Ryan, thank you for the email, and yes, you are talking about probably the hottest dining ticket at Walt Disney World. Yes, even more so than Cinderella's Royal Table for Breakfast, simply because the chef's table is a single table at the very exclusive Victoria and Albert's Restaurant at Disney's Grand Floridian Resort and Spa. Now, this is something I'll likely cover uh, in another segment, either a best of the best or a not-so-hidden treasure of Walt Disney World because this dining experience is truly one of the finest on Disney property and one of the finest that you may have anywhere at any kind of restaurant, even outside of Walt Disney World. Uh, Again, this is located at the Victorian-themed Grand Floridian. Uh, The restaurant is exquisite, exquisite, and the chef's table is a very unique dining experience, because it's actually in the kitchen of Victorian Alberts, and it's not like you're eating in the kitchen, but there's a little side dining area off there, and they have a a fixed-price dinner that runs about $115 if you pair it with wines. It's about $160. Uh, Basically, what happens is that there are only two seatings for Victoria and Albert's at the chef's table. There's ones at 545 through 630 and at 9 through 945. Uh, It's a very formal restaurant. Gentlemen actually have have to wear jackets. Uh, Ties are optional, but you can't even go in in business casually. You actually have to wear a jacket. And again, uh, the chef, Scott Hunnell, will actually come to the table. He'll talk to you about your individual uh, likes and desires, as well as any kind of allergies and things like that. They'll have a royal wine pairing that'll allow you to sample selections from their exquisite and extensive wine cellar that are paired with each course of the menu. You'll also meet the pastry chef, uh, as well as the major D. You'll get a personalized menu for each guest. Uh, Absolutely just a, a super, super dining experience. But yes, it is nearly impossible to get simply because There's only one table and two seatings. And as far as a secret to get the table, other than starting to call at 6.55 in the morning, I don't know if anybody else has had the experience or knows one of the best ways to try and get a reservation for Victorian Outwards. By all means, please let us know. And after I make my reservation, I will share it with everybody else. Next email comes from Ken Simeone in Wilton, Connecticut. I also received similar emails to this one from... Joe Hurley and Mac Franklin and Mario and uh, Ken basically asked he said several years ago we purchased a brick in front of the Magic Kingdom it seems that there is not anyone maintaining him so I'm not sure if there was an expiration date on him do you know if these bricks are for life or do they expire well technically Ken Joe and Frank and Mario uh, the bricks technically can be taken away after I believe 10 years but from what I understand, there is no intent on Disney's part to do so. And from what I also have seen, too, when bricks do get broken, they are still being fixed and or replaced. Uh, so they won't just take it out and put a blank brick in there. They are actually replacing the brick with um, the same type of engraving. So, But remember, too, that if Disney did want to, based on the agreement that you signed when you when you did purchase your brick, if Disney decided to take them out after that uh, contractually agreed-upon period of time, they could. I don't think they're going to do it. I think they're really... Um, Something very unique and and something that allows all of us that actually have a brick to feel as though we're connected to and and a a part of of Walt Disney World somewhere, even though we actually technically don't own it. (laughs) Next email reads, Lou, my husband and I are longtime annual pass holders who recently moved to Tampa, Florida from New York. We generally avoid the parks during the busy holiday time, but this year, since we're so close, we decided to visit Walt Disney World on the 4th of July. We know it's going to be super crowded, but we're hoping it'll be worth it to see the special 4th of July fireworks. Our plan is to arrive on July 3rd in the late afternoon and see the special fireworks at the Magic Kingdom that night. On the 4th of July, we want to see the 9 p.m. fireworks at the Disney MGM Studios, then rush over for the 10 p.m. showing of Illuminations. My questions are: A, do you think it's likely? Um, do you think it's likely the Magic Kingdom will close early on July 3rd? We wouldn't be able to get there till about five or six. Uh, in recent years, I know sometimes on the very busy days it has closed after a certain point for capacity. Uh, I don't necessarily know if you'll have that problem on July 3rd. Um, My guess would probably be not. Second is, do you think it's possible to watch the fireworks at the Disney MGM Studios and still get over to Illuminations before it starts? I know we won't get a prime viewing spot, just want to make it to World Showcase in time. Hmm. That one might be a little bit tougher. Uh, The fireworks on the 4th over at the Disney MGM Studios will take place at 9 o'clock, and Illuminations is going to take place, like you said, at 10. Um, You also asked for any recommendations on where to watch the fireworks at the studios. The natural choice is near the entrance so we could make it out of the park quickly. That's probably what I would have said. But in case we decide not to try to get to Epcot, what's the best place? All right, well, first of all, trying to get from the studios to Epcot might be tough. Um, You know, if you do stand near the entrance, say the fireworks end at 9.20 by the time you maybe walk your way over. You might be cutting it close, um, assuming that they're actually still allowing people in through the uh, International Gateway. You might very well be able to do it. Otherwise, you could also walk to the boardwalk and at least you can see kind of the tops of the fireworks from there. But you you might be able to get at least to the International Gateway to be able to see them. Now, notwithstanding you trying to get out of what will be a very, very crowded park that night, uh, if you weren't going to try and make your way over, I'd say maybe try to stay to the left uh, front of the Sorcerer Hat, and if you're going to stay, you know, that's a great place to stay just to view it. And if you're not and do want to try and get out, you might be able to kind of, you know, hurry through the stores instead of trying to walk down uh, Hollywood Boulevard to the exit. Maybe you can get a water taxi over to Epcot. Um, but again, I think that's going to be real, real tough just because of the um, the amount of the crowds and the time you're talking about. And uh, she f- finishes up by saying, I listen to about a dozen Disney podcasts, but enjoy yours by the most by far. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and effort you put into every week's show. Thank you, thank you, Shannon in Tampa. Shannon, thank you for the email, and best of luck. Let me know how it goes, uh, what you decide to do on July 4th. Next email reads, Lou, I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to hearing it every week. I think it's clearly one of the best Disney podcasts out there, and it's the first one I listen to each and every week. I hadn't been to Walt Disney World for years, and when I first returned on a trip in 2005... I was sort of unhappy to see the flying carpets smack dab in the middle of what I remembered being a nice, wide-open plaza in Adventureland. Am I not the only person that thinks Disney made a mistake dropping this ride right in the middle of Adventureland? I seem to remember years ago when I could sit down by a counter service near the Tiki Room and enjoy a cold beverage and do a little people-watching. Now not only is my nice plaza gone, but they've created a serious traffic bottleneck. And this doesn't even get into the merits of the ride, which I think is a typical midway ride at best. What were they thinking when they added this ride, and shouldn't it really be in Fantasyland? Why do you think they felt the need to add the ride? Well, that's enough venting. It's Disney World after all, so I know I can't really complain. After all, my kids like the ride, and no doubt I'll be riding it in a few weeks. It's actually a pretty good ride at nighttime. Take care, and that comes from Joe. Joe, I think you make some valid points, and we all know what an astounded guy I am, and I feel the same way about how that changed the landscape uh, and kind of the look and the feel of Adventureland. And while I think some people might say that it was all that... Taking advantage of a wildly, wildly popular film franchise at the time, I was actually a huge fan, I still am, of Aloud myself, I think it also has to do with offering something in Adventureland for young children. Not only to help the kids and parents, but for crowd flow as well, because there really isn't very much there for young kids to do. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean may be too scary for some. Uh, the treehouse is boring, and, and it's tough. if you have especially if you have young kids that you have to walk through or carry on. Um, you know, kids can get fidgety online. line. The Jungle Cruise boats, they might not sit through. Um, they, they certainly might not sit through the Enchanted Tiki Room. So a simple, fun attraction with bright colors and familiar uh, characters and music and the spitting camels may be very, very appealing to young kids, and that might be why it's there. It was also very inexpensive for Disney. Uh, it's a very simple ride mechanism, simple for them to build and inexpensive for them to build. Um, however, like I said, many purists still do think it ruins a landscape. Um, but I, I say to try and actually turn that around. Try and look to the enhancements to the landscape that I brought in instead of looking at it the other way around. You know, look at the jewels in the ground. Listen to the music as you walk by. How it The tradi- the, the transitional theming of the land as you go out of the Swiss Family Treehouse and start m- making your way, walking around. Look at the changes in the shops and around the shops. Look at the pavement. Listen, like, like I said, to the music and look at the outside architecture and really kind of get that feeling... And that sense that you have entered uh, Agrabah at least until you get to the back end and get back towards the Enchanted Tiki Room. Hey, Lou, this comes from Nate. This is a follow up message to the Walt Disney World suggestion box idea from show number 14 on May 13, 2007. That was submitted by listener Ryan from Houston, aka Maestro34. I wish there was a bi coastal annual pass offered for both Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Personally, as an East Coaster, I've had occasions when I've considered the purchase of a Disneyland annual pass during visits to California, but haven't gone for it due to the uncertainty of knowing whether or not I'd get all the way back there in a given year. Knowing that I'm holding an annual pass would give me a stronger push to make that happen. But as it is, Walt Disney World's much closer to my home, and I'm much more likely to simply maintain that annual pass and not go to California so often. I've got a number of West Coast-based friends who are in the opposite situation, and again, that comes from Nate. Nate, I have to imagine that there's probably not a huge percentage of Disney fans that go to both uh, you know, Disneyland and Walt Disney World on a really regular basis, or at least maybe semi-regular basis, but... I actually received probably five or six similar emails this week asking about Disneyland and Walt Disney World and the possibility of uh, bi-coastal annual passes and and how the Disney Vacation Club might factor into this if Disneyland builds a Disney Vacation Club membership. And uh, the the, the overwhelming consensus seems to be that uh, if there was this kind of pass, it really would be a strong incentive for guests to go back and forth. And, And somebody actually called it you know, park leaping, as kind of opposed to, uh, to to park hopping. And and I seem to agree. I think it really, uh, having that pass might actually motivate me and other people to try and get out to Disneyland more often than we would, otherwise knowing we'd have to go out and buy individual tickets for each day that we went to the park. I received another email suggestion from a listener who says, My family and I just got back from our fifth trip to Walt Disney World. We love visiting WDW, but have a critical comment for the mouse. On almost every trip we experience, room key park ticket problems. Cast members have reported that electronic devices can interfere and demagnetize these cards. Most visitors have cell phones, wireless radios, cameras, video cameras, pagers, mp3s, etc. on their person. I've also been told by cast members that WDW purchases cards that have lower magnetic fidelity. It could be a real pain to make repeat trips to guest services to get a new card. Also, on our last trip, the cards worked at the entrance turnstiles, but would not work in the FastPass machines. Look at the PhotoPass system and the two-dimensional barcode on the PhotoPass card. Why not go to a similar system for park tickets? I'd be interested to know the failure rate on the PhotoPass cards, I guess, versus the magnetic stripe on the tickets. Or, better yet, just buy a better quality magnetic card media. I'd gladly pay more for a card that could be relied upon. Keep up the good work, and please bring this up next time you have dinner with Bob Iger, haha. And that comes from John Keeler. John, thank you very much for the email. This has been a long-standing complaint among guests that there is a relatively high failure rate among the the swipes and the cards, and and especially with annual pass holders. And it's always been begging the question, why do people that stay at resorts and and have their uh, Key to the World cards get a plastic card, get an annual pass holder that will likely use it more times during the year, then the person who's there for a three, four, seven-day trip only get those those kind of flimsy paper cards that once they get wet or once they get bent, need to be replaced. I've gotten a variety of different answers, um, everything from the amount of information that needs to be stored on the magnetic strips versus the cost of the cards versus the paper cards. Uh, nothing ever really seemed to um, be a sufficient answer, but I think your idea about the, the barcode on the card is very, very good. And my only question is I don't know... If the information on the strips ever gets updated, I'm kind of out of my element here talking about it. If somebody has a better idea of exactly what goes on and what's put on and off the card, and if that barcode system would work, by all means let me know. But I, as an annual pass holder, I know would love to see the hard plastic cards, and you're right, some sort of system to make the cards a little bit more reliable and a little bit more durable. Our final email this week comes from Holly P., who writes... On one of your past shows you mentioned about Epcot turning 25 this year, and that got me to start running down memory lane. I found old photos of Epcot in its early year, and even found a tape of me doing the green screen Dreamfinders School of Drama. While my memories of certain portions of the park are clear, there are a few that are foggy. My question is actually a two-part question both dealing with CommuniCore interventions. First, my mom claims that there used to be a place in the Communicore building where a robot would look at you and then sketch your picture. She claims to have this picture somewhere, but I can't remember that at all. If it was in Epcot, where was it, and what time period did it exist? Um, again, I had hoped to get to this email last week, we did cover this in the, our CommuniCore segment, but you're right, it, it actually was not CommuniCore, and if you do have that picture, I would love to see a copy of it and just kind of give an example of exactly the kind of picture the robots were able to draw. Second, I have this weird memory of around the time CommuniCore got a huge makeover, walking into one of the buildings, and there being row after row of video game systems. I remember being so excited as video games were never allowed in my house but when I asked my mom about this she doesn't seem to remember it being there love the show look forward to listening to future podcasts keep up the awesome work again that's from Holly Holly you're right and uh, many times throughout CommuniCore and now Interventions history there have been video game systems and actually in Interventions right now on that road to tomorrow there is a, uh, a a section of the wall which is pretty much lined up with Sega video game consoles it's right near the Segway thing and where you can get the um, the character photo with the um, if you have a Disney Visa, you can get the, the character uh, photo spot. But you know it's funny because you mentioned the Dreamfinder School of Drama, and that's something I had forgotten about for a long, long time. And that was actually over at the Image Works, and that was in the second floor when there actually was an operating second floor over at the Imagination Pavilion. And it, it was in the Image Works, which, which they called a creative playground of the future, and they had all these very, very cool interactive exhibits. And one of them was the Dreamfinder School of Drama. And basically like you said through the green screen or chroma key video you would act out a couple of different uh a variety of different scenes and it could be anything from uh, westerns or science fiction or fantasy films things like that they would call things like the daring deputies and the return of sagebrush sam acrobatic astronauts and galactic getaway and enchanted travelers wily wizard and the cranky kings and You would basically act this out, and I guess they were able to give you a videotape of it. I remember being up there and wanting to get picked um, as a kid to act in one of these things, but there was a lot of stuff up in Imageworks. There was the stepping tones and the sensor maze and the the, the pin tables, which which I thought were very cool. And we're going to do a a piece on uh, imagination as part of our Epcot series, where we'll talk about this some more, but... um, yeah, th- thanks for bringing back that memory of something I hadn't thought about in a long time, which was the, the school of drama, and hope uh, that we were able to answer your questions and bring back some of the memories for you last week on the Communicore segment. And remember, if you have a question, comment, something you want to talk about, by all means, please send me an email. You can send that over to lou at wdwradio.com. If you also want to call and leave a voicemail, you can leave that at 206-202-4WDW. Thank you again for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I want to thank Jeff Pepper, Pat Witten, Eric Hollister, and Brian Ripper for coming on the show and helping out. Be sure to visit 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, geomouse.com, and allaboutthemouse.com, as well as the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project page. You can find links to these sites, as well as many others, photos, and more information about the topics that we discussed on the show, as well as the new WDW Radio Show Merchandise Shop where you can pick up your new shirts and more over at wdwradio.com. For more information about the Dream Team Project or to make a donation using our secure page at firstgiving.com, you can visit the homepage of wdwradio.com or disneyworldtrivia.com. In just two days, we've amassed almost $1,200 already in donations, and I want to thank you all for your help and support. Don't forget that if you're planning a Disney vacation, please also visit our friends at The Magic for Less Travel for a free no-obligation quote. I give them my highest recommendation due to their free service, commitment to outstanding personal service, and giving you the best possible prices and discounts. Visit the wdwradio.com website for a link over to The Magic for Less Travel. On upcoming shows, I have more fun Disney scene investigations with Jeff Pepper, vacation planning information with the help of some other special guests, more trivia, your email, our ongoing contests, fact or fiction, more of the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World, and so, so much more. Don't forget that I still want the show to continue to be interactive, so please email me at lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Come by our fun and friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney, and of course, if you like the show, please help spread the word, Your votes for the show and reviews on iTunes continue to be very, very helpful and very much appreciated. So thank you very much. Thank you very much again for tuning in this week. I really appreciate you coming back and listening. Have a fantastic week. See ya.
5: Hey Lou, it's Kevin John. I am sitting in an airport in Myrtle beach. My flight has been delayed for like four or five hours. I just got done listening to the iPod section, um, or the podcast section, on um, the uh, Dino Land from uh, the Father's Day episode, and man, I'll tell you, it just blew my mind. I mean, I've always loved that section of the park, um, but you guys just did such a great job of giving all the backstory. I just look at it so differently now. I can't wait to get home and tell my wife about the backstory and everything about about the podcast, so please keep that kind of stuff coming, I mean, that really in-depth detail that um, you know, most people take for granted we try to give as much detail and take our time through the parks when we are, when we are there and, uh, and and I think we do kind of stop and smell the roses a little bit more than other people but uh, man, you guys were just went nuts with that and um, just really, really loved it, made my, uh, my stay here in the uh, Myrtle Beach Airport uh, even uh, in, uh, 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 that much more pleasant so Thank you very much, and uh, keep it coming, brother. You take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, it's me, John, uh, from Mouth Times, and I'm, uh, I'm just listening to your show. Um, just wanted to let you know uh, when Jeff Pepper was talking about the, the sh- uh, shuttle launch in uh, September of 88, September or December of 88, um, saying you were, um, it was actually the show, Space Hall Discovery, and it was the first launch after the Challenger. Columbia was in 2003. Challenger was in 1986. So, just wanted to... I'm surprised you actually didn't know that, so, um, but, uh, yeah, just wanted to inform you on that, okay? So, I'll see you later, and I'm enjoying the show. (laughs) Oh, boy, do I miss f Craft back in the day. Talk to you later, man. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou and Pat Crassers, this is,
1: uh,
5: The Bonham family from Greenwood, South Carolina. We're spending our first day here at Walt Disney World at the Magic Kingdom and Lou's favorite ride, such as Great Escape. Queue line, get ready to go in. And just want to let you know we're having a wonderful time. Our 13 month old son had his first visit to Walt Disney World and saw Mickey earlier today. Gave him a big kiss on the nose. The picture is wonderful. I just want to say hey to everybody and uh, Lou, thanks for the great work. Keep it up. Bye.
1: What is it that makes us Disney fans?
2: Is it our love of the parks, our love of the movies, or is it just all about the mouse?
4: Next week, the All About the Mouse Disney Podcast welcomes
2: a new co-host. For more magic, more laughter, and more Disney, Jonathan Dichter joins the All About the Mouse Disney Podcast, starting with July
4: 6th, 2007 only at www.allaboutthemouse.com